thought you really didn't like me because uh, based on the impression that I got from Mendel, what? you're very, uh, you're not, you're not thrilled about him smoking cigars. Well, the best part is that recently I, s I s tried a few of his cigars with him. Really? And he was so excited by this yep. that he said to me, you know, maybe this can be our thing. That's I'm like, beautiful. I don't know about that. Um, but it was a nice attempt. sauce my name is Chaim Cohn and I just wrapped up a wonderful conversation with my friend uh, Mendel Grodin and his wife Malka they have a wonderful story to tell and it's rich with insight and lessons and also a call to action I'll let it speak for itself but just to set some context uh, Mendel and Malka have been married for nine years and for many years they struggled with uh, infertility. And two years ago, they adopted their first child, Isaac. And just a few months later, their daughter, Fania. Uh, both Isaac and Fania are biracial, which obviously adds to some of the complexities, the existing complexities uh, with adoption and adoption specifically within the Orthodox Jewish community and the Crown Heights community in particular. We talked about a few different things and went in a few different directions, but it was a rich conversation and um, shed a light on, on a number of things. And it's, uh, it's interesting how sometimes the, the more unique the situation, the, the more potential it has to give new insight onto things that we might otherwise overlook or stay comfortable into old ways of thinking, living, speaking, and uh, if we're wise, we'll take heed to those situations as observers and take them to heart, and I'm going to try to do that. Um, Mendel's a wonderful guy, and he's been a friend for some years, and every once in a while we'll get together for some cigars and coffee and talk about whatever, and I got to meet his wife, Malka, about two years ago when he invited me for Shabbos lunch, and I got to hear more about their story. So that's enough out of me. And this is uh, Malka and Mendel Grodin. As always, welcome your feedback. I'll put some links in the description for things that Malka uh, has written. And if I don't speak to you, and this does get posted before Rosh Hashanah, wishing you all a happy and sweet new year.
and as we get to in the conversation, sweet in the sense of, well, realizing that what we already have in our lives is sweet. Thanks for listening, and look forward to talking to you soon. You got married really young. We we don't really know. How old were you when you got married? I was 19. I was 23. Sometimes like people get married that young, and then they do some growing up, and they kind of go in different directions. You guys were, would you say, lucky in the way that you kind of, you know? Yeah, definitely. Did that together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were so young. It's crazy. I turned 20 a few months after we got married. Um, I mean, Mendel's whole college career was during our, was was during marriage. I mean, I I lost weight. Like, I'm, I looked like a completely different person before when we got married. I mean, so much changed. It's yeah. been nine years. Mm. I mean, when when I when I look at you know when someone tells me they got married last year, I'm like, man, I've been married nine years. Not that I mean, God willing, many years to come. But yeah, it's been an evolution. Completely different people. Mm. Um, luckily, we have enough in common to keep us together. <laughs> like cigars. Right. Cigars, our thing. At what point did you were from the get-go, you were like, uh, you got married, you wanted to have children from the start? No. Um, I mean, when we got married, it's not even something I thought about that was or wasn't going to have children. When we got married, it's just... That's just what you did. You just get married, and then within a year, year and a half, you have a kid, regardless of if you really um, are in t- want to or not. So that's kind of the way I approached it. Um, and then it just didn't happen. And remember, I remember we called a rub, I think, because I always like to do things right. <laughs> so uh, about a year, a year and a half, and remember we called a rub, or you called the rub, and he said, After, for two years, don't worry about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's also what like a doctor would have said also. Right. For young people, they don't do much until a year and a half, two years. Right, right. But that was the way, and even when we started, even when we started saying like, oh, we should probably look into this, it's not like at that point I had some burning desire to have a child. It was just like it was the right, it was the, that that was the step we had to, t- we were going to take next. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean. Did you have a burning desire to have a child? No, I mean, looking back, I mean, you know, in a sense, it's kind of uh, almost a blessing that you have some time, you know, when you know, get married so quickly and Gosh. so young. Gosh. It really works out nicely if you, you right. know, have some time to just be with each other and if grow a bit. Right. And like at least begin to yeah, learn what it means to live with someone um, and get over that initial. So many people get married and they have that initial stage of, you know, infatuation and this and that and like you have to learn how to live your life a little bit as regular people and we ought to do that so you lucked out in that way we lucked out in many many ways but yeah in that way yes i know this wasn't necessarily going to be the the topic but since we're talking about that a lot of friends who get married and they jump right into that and it becomes almost like a a desirable distraction from the relationship it's like something and they'll often I've often heard sentiments like you want to have a kid right away because just having the two of you, you don't have a joint mission, uh, something greater than yourselves to keep you on the same page. I'm like, well, what's that supposed to mean? That like, sounds really bizarre. It sounds like, really? Is that like the party I've heard, line? I've heard, I've heard sentiments like that, yeah. Really? So it's like, oh, God forbid we should have too much quiet time where it's just us because we'll probably like want to kill each other. So let's like, 
have a project. That sounds really bizarre. That's like what, when you know when the couple wants to get divorced and they go to the rub. Classic. Have the rub is always like have a baby. Right. Not anymore, hopefully. But I mean, that was always the case. I don't know. It's hard because I. It's. I'm a in a lot of ways a party line person. So. There was always that sentiment, you get married, and within a year, a year and a half, or whatever, 11 months, you have a baby. So it's hard for me to to argue with that sentiment, um, but we were very lucky that we had time to grow mm-hmm. as people. Um, now, Malka, I, I read your article like two years ago in the Sheikh Abad newsletter. I think I was at your house for lunch, Shabbos lunch, and then I, I heard about it, and I read it while I was there. In it, you describe, like, you know, a few years long of this being, like, the focal point of your life and, like, taking up a lot of space. Uh, what with running around from doctor to doctor and the infertility treatments, and you've spoken a lot about it, but could you just kind of wrap that up in a sure. few minutes for me? Sure. Um, so, I mean, again, we started this, we were very, very young. So every do- we were every doctor's, like, dream when we walked in because we're money signs, you know? We're, go- we're easy, young people, no problem. You're going to have a baby within a year. Um, but slowly, and that was with all the kind of light treatments, but slowly, with treatment after treatment, that didn't work, and we went, you know, to the big guns. Um, and that you know, didn't work either. We had repeated failure after failure. Um, we went from doctor to doctor. Um, and I won't, I wouldn't say that that time it was fully the focal point of my life when we were doing it. You know, a treatment can take, let's say, four to six weeks, depending on what you're doing, how you have to prepare. Um, and so during that time, obviously, like I would become mentally obsessed with it. Um, I would um, spiritually become obsessed with it, meaning like thinking about everything that I'm doing and how is it contributing towards our the, the, our future and will we have a child based on the fact of you know how I if I davened or if I you know gave some tzedakah or something like that. I was very obsessed with that at that time, um, but when we would have a failure, we'd take some time in between. And during that time, we, we kind of lived our lives. We, you know, traveled. We, not that much. Oh, well, we'd like go well, down we, to Borrow Park, <laughs> you know. We went to South Street Seaport. Yeah. Um, but we did things. We hung out. We read books. We Meaning we, we lived. Like, it's we had full lives. And then it was always like, should we, when should we go back to it? Should we not go back to it? Um and that's when it becomes like the focal point, like your every day. And you think like you see a date coming up in the calendar, like I would say a movie poster and it would say, you know, January 13th. And I would think, oh, like by then I'll know, you know, or you think about the summer and you think like I could be pregnant in the summer. Um, alas, <laughs> that didn't happen. Um, so, and we did that for several years. I would say probably four and a half years, something like that, that we were actively. Yeah, something like that. Where where were you at in all this? Uh, I don't remember actually. Um, what, what what do you mean by where? What I mean, I like, where was your head at? Where were you like? Uh, um, I think I was a different, very different. Um, so for me, the, the the you know the hardest part was seeing my wife in like a lot of distress about this. To me, to be honest, um, I, I didn't. I don't know. I wasn't very. I wanted to have children, um, but I don't know. I always. I, I know I used to say this to you, and it definitely like <laughs> just like 
like I now know that it's like this is not a helpful thing to like say to women but like I would tell Maka like you know like I married you for for you I mean I I hope we have kids and it will be sad if we don't that wasn't a bad thing to say but I mean it has its place to say something like that I know I, I don't know I think it I was just doesn't replace the fact that you know it I think replace. I was less internally torn up about not having um biological children right yeah you were the trailblazer early on in general even when you would say things like that early on you said things like yeah. oh one we can adopt and i was like no way I'm not yeah, adopting. i mean we, we we're both weren't ready children. for that then but um yeah like it it really didn't it didn't mean the same to me huh. yeah but you were very good about just protecting and protecting me in the whole process and making sure that I was okay, regardless if I had to not talk to people, if I had to, whatever it was, if I, you know. To me, the, I mean, I don't, I'm just hearing it, but it sounds really like a beautiful thing to say. I, I, I'm contrasting that with something that I hear that always really, like, makes me feel yucky. Like, when I hear when stories I, about, sorry to interrupt, when yeah. I hear stories about people who, like, and I don't, I don't, like, actually know anyone like this. Like I've heard, you know, couples married for like 10 years and then they get divorced because they couldn't have kids. Right. And I'm not to like, I don't, I don't want to sound judgmental. It's not being judgmental on individuals. It's just like that as a, as like a, a thing that can happen. I, it's just, that's very not. Well, you don't mental. You don't know why they really got divorced A and B. No, it's something like old Crown Heights ladies are like, they, you know, they were married and then they got divorced. Like, you don't know. You don't know okay. what was going on to that's be fair. fair. Right. That's um, but something else. But like for your whole marriage to just make it or break, you know, the, the make so it or break it part of your marriage is like having children. Remember when we, so we went to an A time conference. A time is an infertility support group. Um, it's run, is it run by, yeah, Hasidim. Yeah. And um, they put on these beautiful events and we didn't go to anything. And then for some reason, I, I saw this thing about a conference, a Shabbaton. I was like, let's go. And we went. It was completely, um, it was in this, that Stamford hotel that everyone has events in. Right. It was completely segregated the whole time, like floor, hot ceiling to floor mechitzas. The women's side was like beautifully done with, you know, suede, fancy chairs and flowers. And the men's side was very bare. But we made a lot of, we met a lot of people. And remember afterwards, we would talk about how some of the couples we had met, that we were, it, it was just so hard to hear that, so much of the relationship was so focused on would they have children? Would they not have children? You know, um, you remember that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot. You know, a large part of our relationship at these points in times when we were dealing with was also like that was the conversation. But it was never about our relationship. Right. Like our relationship, our marriage. Right. Our wasn't friendship centered about whether we'll. There was a separate. There's like us. There's our relationship. There's our marriage, and then there was this big, you know, topic like, are we going to have kids? How are we going to have kids? Right. Right. But, but it had no. Sorry, we interrupted on, you a long time. No, 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 no. It had no bearing on our marriage. Right. I mean, ha, right. It didn't have a make it or break it bearing on our marriage. It did have a bearing on our yeah, marriage. Yeah, but yeah. Semantics. No, but you know, it's it's obviously extra, extra stress, money, so much money that we spent um, that could have went to a down payment. <laughs> no, no, no. It was important that we that we tried. We spent a lot of money. You said you said like they see dollar bills. Uh, you're saying that there's like a, a business element to that whole thing. Of course. Yeah. Why don't you talk about money for a second? 
Um, so that people so, listening okay, so the way, like. in, I mean, in general, they, they typically will start people on simple things, you know, medications, things like that. And then often, depending obviously on people's problem, they'll often have do IUIs next. That's intrauterine insemination. That's when they take the sperm and they put it in, but it's, um, it's like a, you know, you're awake, you're awake for that process. Um, there'll be like a Hasidish woman that, is, that meets you there for hashkacha purposes um, to watch the, the mm -hmm. sperm. And um, that's cheap. So insurance really loves it when people do that, even though it often does not work. I don't know the statistics, but most people I know, that's not the thing that helped them have a baby. The next level is IVF, um, in vitro fertilization. So that's obviously where there's a whole lab element of it, and they the embryo is fertilized outside the um, in in the lab. Um, so that's obviously much more expensive. So I would say IVF probably costs between twelve to fifteen thousand dollars plus medication can be what another you know two to five thousand depending on what the issue is. You know, so it's a lot of money. Um, a lot a lot of money and there's this weird element with doctors great doctors but you know you'll go to a doctor and they have like a sick watch and a comb over and um, all their signs behind them and I don't know you're in your or you're out you're mm -hmm. can you pay can you do it right you can transfer you to Maria and you could talk about finances mm -hmm. or you're out um so that's a big element. And they it. know a lot of people are feeling desperate. Right. Uh. Yeah. They know they have you. Right. But yeah, you we have had nowhere some, else to go. We had some bad doctors. We had, I don't want to say that. We had plenty of great doctors that are doing great work. But we, had a lot, we did have some poor bedside manner experiences um, where, you know, where I would be in tears. Remember, imagine you're hopped up on hormones and also you think like, will I or will I not have a child? And this may be one of our last chances. And they're like, oh, unfortunately, it's not looking great, but hop up onto the table. And, you know, I'm crying and Mendel's like, no, you don't have to listen to them. If you need a moment to collect yourself, you can collect yourself. And I'm like, man in white coat said I must do this. I'm going, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. That's intense. Yeah, it's very intense. The only way to remember it without crying is laughing about it. You know what I mean? It's it's very intense. You'll sit in a waiting room with lots of women sitting there, um, and one Hasidic couple, a few Hasidic couples, like standing by billing, like quietly discussing things. Remember that? Yeah. Um, and you wait for them to call you, and there's just so much waiting. There's so much dead time um, in between things where you're not actually doing things. Um, I don't like the beginning of this interview. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard. Yeah, we made it <laughs> <off> easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one thing I wanted to say, I was like uh, contrasting what that sentiment y that y you shared with your wife uh, with something that I hear. Uh, I want you to be the mother of my children. You're going to, or like you hear Tony Soprano or like in, in, the, in, the, in the Italian mafia cultures, oftentimes like, um, like they have their guma, like the woman, their mistress, mm -hmm. and then they have like the mother of their children. Like meaning the fact that they gave birth to their the fruit of their loins is almost what gives them their status. It's, like it's a very twisted, like uh, primitive thing that sometimes is glorified, and and um, that's why like I, yeah, I almost feel like we can fall prey to that, uh, and and this kind of either you already were or the your experience gave you an opportunity to like double down on the fact that you love your wife just because she's your wife uh, and like 
Um, but uh, and I'm wondering if uh, almost people sometimes don't get that, and it becomes like everything is just a means for a greater end, and, and we, we don't have the ability to just okay, is this valuable in and of itself, even if it doesn't bring about the next stage? I don't know. I'm gonna get flack for this, but like it could happen that someone just has one child after another, and part of me is like, did you like get to know this kid? Yeah, and like right around the time that they might have the headspace to like maybe not be changing diapers every second and like maybe get to engage with their kid, they're having another one, and and they could blame it on or like attribute that to the, our culture, but sometimes I think I see it as like a reason to not have to like be present for life because there's always something else, something, the next thing to do anyway. Yeah. But I mean, I think a lot of aspects of life can be used that way. Right. People can just dive into their careers and use it in that sense. Um, yeah, it's not necessarily about kids. Yeah. So I want to, you, you were talking before about the, that intense process and there's like a spiritual element there for you as, as a Jewish woman, I, I think maybe particularly as a Hasidic Jewish woman, there's so many of our stories revolve around, you know, going to the Rebbe for a bracha and oh. it's like a, it's like a whole thing um, that goes back. I'm not just saying it within a contemporary Lubavitch culture that goes back. Like a lot of the Baal Shem Tov stories, right. and Hasidic lore is around that. What's that about, by the way? Why is there so much, there, I don't know. Such an essential, what do you mean? It's such an essential blessing. It's like the core of who we are. Right. And and if that miracle can happen, then anything can happen. Mm. I don't know. It's like, a, I, it's hard for me to hear those stories. Right. I don't, even now, like there's some, there was something recently circulating. It's it's hard for me to, to read them um, because they're they're often written in this way of, especially now, and I'm not, uh, I'm not, you know, someone drank some wine or some uh, so a Rebbe wine or someone, you know, uh, was kvater. And there's so much attributed to that direct act as opposed to, I don't know, I think of the segula. It's like a thumbs up from God. Am I allowed to say that? That's how I um, think of a I'm segula. Right with you. you yeah. know, it's, 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 representative of something larger like all the good that we do in the world uh you know all, all everything that we do as jews all the medical intervention that we're blessed or not or, or blessed to have you know it's it's a whole package deal and there's such a simplicity with uh she drank the wine and then now nine months later she had a baby you know it's 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 rough mm. and and actually one of the last times that i decided to do something there's a, you know there's as my sister-in-law was pregnant, and there's this concept of um, when a woman is in her ninth month, people will, uh, someone who wants children will go to the mikvah after her. She'll dip beforehand, the woman in her ninth month, and then the woman who has to go to the mikvah will dip afterwards. And I remember when my sister-in-law asked me if I wanted to do this, I was like, oh, I'm so fed up with all these segulas. But I called um, someone um, whose mental's close to who I really respect and admire, and I asked him, um, what should I do? And he said... If you, it's, a, it's a holy concept brought down in the books. Oh, no, first you spoke to that person. And he said, it's a holy concept brought down in the books. And then I called some Arav, who I have a good relationship with, and I said to him, what should I do? And he said, 
you want to do it, do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Like, it's a nice thing, you know, mm-hmm. if it makes you feel good. And then I decide, you know what? I'm going to do it. Um, but there's such a, there's such lore and such, I don't know, there's so much attributed to this one little thing that I, it kind of takes away from the whole picture of what goes into something. I don't know. Yeah. That well, a I fair mean, way yeah. of attributing but it like, and, you know, makes me crazy when people will tell me these stories and they want though. me to feel good about it, you know? Well, I think that's a good segue into the other side of this um, is that I think both of us see our story in the same line, right. the same tradition of as all of these miracle stories. Right. So you uh-huh. have the story where the guy drank the Rebbe wine and nine months later he had a baby and right, all these miracles. I very much, and I think you think the same. I very much see our story in the exact same way. Right. Um, and can you maybe say how long after this Mikvah story was our son born? Nine months, baby. Woo. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I, I very much see our story same. in the same tradition. I'm gonna get this story wrong, but I, the point of it, I remember. Uh, Shlomo Kabach, I think, said it. It's like just one of these stories about some poor Jew in the shtetl who was going to lose everything or go into the dungeon because he couldn't pay the rent from the local parts or some fill in the blanks. And he... The point of the story anyway, right? He He kind of gets the money, but then he loses it again and feels like God abandoned him. And then... Someone sees him the next day, and he's absolutely like ecstatic and happy. Um, and he says, "Well, I, I assume you found the money." He's like, "No." He says, "What? What are you so happy about?" He's like, um, "He's like, yeah, I went, I went to the shul to daven, and and uh, but I found out like why, why this, why this is meant to be my lot." Forget exactly what, what how the story played out, but that was the point. The answer didn't come in the form of what he thought he wanted. It came in what was supposed to happen, and the joy and the miracle, if you will, wasn't that discovery. Like you, he didn't get the money, but I realized that that wasn't really what I wanted. Um, it's like a arc you can find in, in everywhere in life, and we all have some story which is close to our entire like life story is often in the form of what we say in Yiddish, you know, which is, you know, I have my plan and then inevitably because it's life, things don't go according to plan. But if I'm lucky, I find out how uh, this is exactly what was supposed to happen and I don't always know that in the process. It feels like everything is going wrong, but then everything is going exactly right. Um, and the the acceptance of that in the form of wh- however that happens for us is is the miracle. Right? But so often, religion can turn into what my friend called superstition or transactional, where it feels more like we're just trying to manipulate God into getting our stuff. Give me my stuff. Yeah, I've actually, we'll probably talk more about this soon, but... Um I'm often told, not really so much anymore, because I'm I'm pretty straightforward about it. But like I I used to get a lot, um, you know, at Fabrengans, people are drinking, getting emotionally excited about God, and someone would inevitably turn to me and say, you know, Chaim, um, 
can do, etc., etc., can't even do, um, and the Abishur should, uh, you know, should, should bless you with your own children. Um, and I got very used to saying, I, so, like, I really appreciate the sentiment, but I don't accept your bracha. Mm. And, and then I, I like Shakhtai, so I would just stop there and, you know, watch their eyes get all wide like a deer in the headlights, and, and they'd be like, what, what do you mean? Like, I just don't accept specific, very specific brachas like mm. that. Um, well, you know, if you want to give me a bracha, you should just, you know, how about let's agree on the Abishur should bless me like he, the Abishur should continue to bless me like he, like he has abundantly until now. I'll drink to that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just about, it's kind of like what you're saying. It's, it's perception. You have to have, you know, your head has to be open. You have to be open to finding blessing in, in a place where you weren't necessarily looking initially and, and not focusing on on a very specific right. goal. And, and and also the even like all these stories of barrenness that we're so used to that for so many people used to tell me you know like you're you're like one of the mahos and there's and I and I would always say I don't really want to be like one of the mahos thanks so much um, but now I can really associate like I see that story and I see salvation just like I see salvation there there's salvation in our story too like the ending might look a little bit different but it's but it's the same thing in many ways, you know. In many ways, it's not. You know, we'll talk about specifics. In right? many ways, it's not. You know, I didn't. So, such as life, or I mean, but, the, the, but the notion of, of of the blessing or miracle being the end all is obviously not right. Not part of it. It's an opportunity to start again that process of seeking the blessing, but knowing based on your previous experience that it's not always going to look exactly what I expect it to look like and then I find out that that's also how it's supposed to be uh, so you wrote something really beautiful in that article uh, about uh, this trip to the aisle that you had and like an uh, awakening or realization you had um, around this slogan that we often use so much and sometimes don't pay attention to the meaning or um, think good and it will be good uh, so c- could you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so growing up, obviously, Trachovitzanga was in that same magical thinking vein of we're going to think good. I remember in camp, like with Gushkatif, just like feeling that we were going to will this and then it was going to happen. Um, and that we could have these like specific prayers and attribute our, our thoughts a specific way. And then God would have to acquiesce. Um, but I, and I was having a lot of trouble with it because obviously things weren't going my way. And I, and that's in general, like for a long time, I always struggled with that religiously. Like I would do things and then, and I would do things with the thought, the intention of getting what I wanted, um, which I think many people do. And then I went to speak to Brenya Schaefer about it. Um, and she told me that that's not what Trachka Vedzayengut means. That Trachka Vedzayengut means we're asking God that. He should make what happens around us that that should be the good. Whatever the situation that we end our, that we end up in, that God places on, uh, us in, that situation that will be the good, and we should be able to see that. That's Trachovitzanka, and I remember thinking like, man, she's tripping. Like this is not. This is obviously not right. 
Um, but it took me time. And I mean, that's really a theory I've embraced. But I've gotten pushback. I remember being at a Fabrengan. It was before I had kids. So at Fabrengan's, anyone who ha you know has gone through infertility knows that Fabrengan's is when people, mm -hmm. you just become the object of everyone's yep. prayers. Um, so I remember saying this concept because I was very taken by it. And someone there said, and I said something like, it's not a magical, it's not a magical thing. And she said, well, I'd like to think that there's something magical to it. Like there was such, there, there was a fear of accepting this concept in that way. Do you know what I mean? Um, and there is, there is something magical to it, of course. There, because there is something, like I look back and I think, wow, my prayers were answered. But, but it would have been healthier if earlier on I would have, a, I would have prayed for, with an element of surrender almost, you know what I mean? Instead of such direction and intention. Um, The, I imagine the key differentiation is between magic and miracle. Right. Oh, beautiful. I think sometimes when people use that phrase or give brachas about specific things, they're entering the realm of magic or manipulation. So it's like, um, okay, I this is like a like a long time pet peeve of mine, which is why when I read your thing, it was like so perfect, and I've been. Interestingly enough, at Fabrengans, oftentimes, like polling to see, and I will say, more than not, people tell me uh, what you said, that no, it does mean that um, that if I am at think positive, without getting into the whole, like, the impact of positive thinking, like putting that aside, right. that in general, be about thinking positive or praying positive, that we are uh, even charged with and and invited to the opportunity of asking for particular things with the expectations or the hope that we'll get those particular things, or um, that that somehow there is something that's going to happen. Uh, meaning to say, they they take that expression to mean that I'm actually going to think positive around my particular thing, not that my attitude about it will change or my experience around my reality will change, but reality itself will change to the end of what I particularly am asking for. And it's so fundamental. One of the situations where I see it, and like it really scares me, is when someone is, is sick, and they'll have children rally and say to him, and it's as if, um, and sometimes they'll say it outright, or we're praying for Rafur Shlema, and... Um, and that's great, but what often isn't being communicated is that um, it isn't, you know, like we, 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 we have the responsibility, there's an expression in Yiddish that I, I heard Ali Wiesel repeat, what is it? he said, Jews don't rely on miracles, Jews say Tehillim. Mm. It's a beautiful sentiment, but does that mean that we say Tehillim and then we get what we want, be it the before Shlema or whatever else, or is it that we say to Hillam to remind ourselves that whatever God has in store is for the good, and I want to help put myself in a situation or a state of mind where I can appreciate that, even when it doesn't appear that way. 
Another thing that we often pay lip service is the same thing. So I'll make a lachaim and give you a bracha, and they'll say something. They'll say you should have good, and you should have revealed good. Mm. Right? And the Rebbe said that, right? But does that mean? What does that mean? So many times I ask people, what does that mean? And they say, it shouldn't just be good on God's terms. It should be good on my, on human terms. So I'm like, okay, let's flesh this out a bit. And I, I kind of started coining the phrase where, where I feel comfortable. I was like, basically, your perception of God is this guy who's going around giving cancer. <laughs> like God just wants to give you cancer. But if somehow you can like really rub his back good enough and say the things he likes to hear you could get him to change his mind or forget to give you cancer and give you a whole bunch of goodies instead. And so you're saying, okay, I know in God's twisted way, cancer could be good, but I'm asking you to give me the other good, right? So like, it's very revealing, I think, right? So that our, of our perception of, uh, of God. I mean, so the... W- what I think all these things mean is that going back to like menstruach godlach, right? That um, by design, I don't know um, what's going to happen, and I don't know what is even best. I have my perception of what's best, and and I and I desire that, and I pray for that. But more than that, I pray for that I can experience the good that is already inherent in the world. Once I appreciated this like really fundamental difference, I see it everywhere. I see it everywhere. It's like all around Siddhis, it's in Hayyam Yayim. And it, I saw something, I'm like really hijacking the mic there, but I saw something recently and, and, and it hit me so strong. And then I, and I shared it with someone and I told them about your article in reference to it, because I thought it was so on point. This is, was in uh, Chayenu. Uh, I didn't read it, but someone posted on Facebook, <laughs> and I saw it. It's an important <laughs> clarification. <laughs> and this is from Kesser Shemtev, the Baal Shemtev, right? So I'll, I'll just read it. A primary principle of living with a spiritual outlook is expressed in the verse, commit your affairs to God, and your plans will be established. Whatever opportunity or incident arrives your way, bear in mind it is sent directly from God. One should also pray that God send his way whatever is truly best for him, as seen from God's perspective, and not the kind of goodness that mortals appreciate. For it is quite possible that what a human considers beneficial for himself is in fact detrimental to him. Rather, he should cast everything into God's hands, all of his affairs and needs, trusting God to act in his best interest. As it is stated, cast your burden onto God and he'll take care of the rest. So to me, that explains the whole deal, right? So yes, I often uh, translate events uh, as I ought to be on human terms based on my experience. But what the, the the prayer is that I should come to realize or experience how God's 
best intentions are also my best intentions. That God's best intentions are with that have me in, in heart, right? That they're not two separate things. That I'm not fighting against God's will, right? That God wants to give me cancer and I want a million dollars, all right? So it's like, I don't know. Whatever has, God has in store for me is the best for me. And the function of prayer to heal him is aligning myself with that. I mean, I think we, we also, you know, as, as Jews do believe, though, that prayer can, can change things, right? I don't think when you say tell him for someone to get better, you, you actually want them to get better. And we believe that God does have the power to, to heal them. But now, if, if they don't, it doesn't mean that all those children at that rally didn't daven with enough kavana, and, you know, they, had a, they have a problem. It's that for whatever reason, right? I mean, this is just how to, this is the only way you can have a consistent theology. Like for whatever reason, God decided not, he no. not, he said no. Mm, right. right? It's, it's not that we don't believe in using prayer that way, but, and I would never tell, if anyone ever tells a person who lost a child that they should, oh, don't worry. Oh, you'll, you'll, you'll see the good in this one wait, day. Wait, wait, wait. So I think that, that that whole thing is very much like, not very so. much, it, it's, a, it's entirely a personal process. Right. More so than like, you're, that, is not, that is never something that you, right? right? So I bless my fellow with the best, like what you said, like, and whatever, open-ended, whatever that means to them. I, yeah. I, that's why like, I don't assume I know exactly what is best for you or that I even know what you want, Right. Um, but when it comes to myself, the opportunity for myself is to to have that discovery um, f- for myself. Yeah, I think that's very very different when when it comes to like the you know telling that to someone else. It's it, it's a personal uh, process. Um, anyway, so, uh, I guess we kind of went off on a tangent there, but I, I think it's really really fundamental. And and when I read it. Uh, in your article, it was it, it really put it well, um, and I think I mean to your point, Mendel. I, someone showed me something even where the Rebbe talks about this concept of actually um, changing God's mind or heart through prayer, and that's something that we we have a unique ability as Jews or children of God to have that level of communication, but. Um, I don't know. I don't. I, I really don't know what to make of that because, um, I, or I, I believe in some way those two can coincide and, and coexist. They're not. They're not contradictory. But I think if it's all that, um, I don't. I don't know that. It, to me, it, the only logical conclusion is that you're living with a very cruel God who wants to give you the opposite of what's good, right. and then you're constantly trying to manipulate him. And it, I was thinking it's kind of a timely conversation because you often hear the sentiment around Rosh Hashanah or general, like you have people like, sweetened. you know, yeah, exactly, right? So is that sweetened? Like, oh yeah, we do all these things around that and we, we pray that whatever, because it's ordained on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, whatever is going to happen for the next year, so we're trying to like do all these things and be in our best behavior to remind God that we're going to be good and good boys and give us lots of treats and we dip the apple in the honey. For the most part, it sounds like, okay, we're going to try to, you know, get through to God to give us treats. And and last couple of years, my perception of it is, it's for me. It's to, it's 
the reminder is for me to remember that whatever comes this year, it it truly is sweet, even if I don't, you know. So that's um, a healthy outlook. I think. I mean, I really, I don't. I I think the other one is just very uh, abusive, almost, because it's it one it it sets forth like a very dangerous precedent and. Yeah, and the only conclusion is that I'm left with is that God has it out for me, and I'm trying to like, you know, twist his arm or trick him. Right. Anyway. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say both, both, you know, both ways of looking at it are probably true to some extent, and it's a matter of which one you choose to focus on. Right. I mean, forcing God to right change his behavior is a very, very ancient. I mean, ancient, ancient belief. Right. Even in, in the ancient. I mean, have you ever heard of Christina, Christina Hayes? Christine. Christine Hayes. Are you sure you want to say this? Okay, I want to. Yeah. No, no, no. But just within Judaism, it goes back to to Avram Avinu trying to like change God's mind. Yeah. Uh, No, she's just talking. Whatever. Yale professor of biblical studies. She's just talking about um. She's talking about embracious whatever, like the whole six days of creations under the cure. She ends up. Going on a like a little tangent about ancient Near East religious beliefs, that and I think whatever. But yeah, she's basically talking about how it was very much you know a culture where if you did certain rituals the right way, then the gods were forced to listen to you. There's no other; they can't refuse. Right. I think that's not the Jewish. Right. I don't think it's coincidental that you you said gods, right? right? Because if it's gods. Then you, you know you're gonna take care of this guy, and he's gonna give you your stuff. And you go, but if right. it's one God, then it's the same God who's, you know, uh, making a holocaust, who's also, you know, helping people have babies and healing the sick. So I'm I have to, if I'm being intellectually honest, come to an appreciation of I do not know what really is best. I have my human instincts for what's best, and I hope that that is in line with what God has in mind. But I, at the same time, I pray that whatever God has in mind, um, which is best and for the best, um, I should be able to like, you know, experience it as that. You know, and that that's not something that comes natural. I think that's where people get tripped up. It's like where people almost punish themselves for thinking. We're supposed to. We're human beings. Obviously, right. we're we just we want, what we want what we want, and it's supposed to be that way. Anyway, um, obviously, yeah, a lot more that we could talk about with that. But so let's. So you so you had this 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 kind of shift in that you went from being hell bent or. Uh, you know, committed in mind in prayer to getting one particular result to being more receptive to this just blessing. And and Mendel put it so beautifully, you both did, that you actually, the miracle did happen, just not in the form that you had originally anticipated or right. hoped for. Right. And uh, that's like the most, yeah, I think that's perfect. And I don't, and I don't think it was, you know, one moment 
which brought me clarity about that, mm -hmm. on that concept. It took me several years. And, and even, I think, in the beginning of starting the process of deciding to adopt and it becoming a real consideration, there was still like a voice in the back of my head which was, oh, this is a little, this is a little fake. Um, um, you know what I mean? Like, we're not really, we're not really gonna be parents. Um, there's an element of like playing house here. But over time, obviously that changed. <laughs> so, and how long after that did the like adoption conversation happen? Oh, it was probably a few years. It was probably two years later. Um, adoption happened. Um, the conversation started, I would say, so we'd had a f uh, our last kind of failure um, in early, in July of 2016. And at that point, um, I, I thought that we were going to continue. I felt obligated to continue. Um, I, I didn't think that we could disappoint everyone, um, by just giving up. Um, and doctors have this way of talking. I'll say like, oh, it's, it's not a race. It's a marathon, which means, what does that mean? How many more years, how much more of this are you supposed to do? And so Mendel had in the past said to me, well, we could, we could just adopt. And, and, but I wasn't receptive to that at the time. It wasn't the right time for me to hear that. Um, and then something happened, and I, and, I, and I went to a therapist, and in conversation with her, as I was describing this agony of how, uh, and like not wanting to really do this again, not thinking that I could go through the trauma of like the hope and then this horrible failure again, she said to me, well, what if you never do that again? Um, and that was the first time that I thought, what if we actually stopped? What if we actually did something different? It was just, uh, that moment alone was very freeing um, to not feel like I needed to keep doing this. Um, though, though, though I did get some, I remember we went, you know, the nice, doc the li nice last doctor we used gave us a little bit of our money back because we had bought a two package, uh -huh. <laughs> two package deal. And so when I went back to get the check from them, the nurse there, who didn't, nice woman, said something to me like, yeah, some people just aren't strong enough to do this. And I didn't say anything to her, but afterwards, Mendes like, yeah, she should have. But, but, but in that moment, I didn't say anything to her. But yeah, there was this sentiment of like, oh, you're so weak and you're just giving up. Um, but that's not how I felt. <laughs> how did you feel? Just free, free of like, uh, we had tried, we tried so much. Like, what else are we supposed to do? Let me ask you the question this way. At, at what point did the decision to explore adoption shift from a like uh, last resort or second best to like, this is what was supposed to happen? Because it's... Well, the moment we, so we went to an info session we ended with the agency that we ended up using. And when we drove, we drove there, we, we, um, we had, we learned everything. It's very, you know, you're hearing all these terms for the first time, all these legal things, and it's a blur. Um, but I remember as we left, we were driving home and they gave me this purple folder that I was holding that had a picture of a baby on it. And that was the first time that I remember driving with Mendel and feeling like, wow, we're actually going to build a family. Like, this is real. This might happen. I'd never, for many years, I didn't have it. You know, in the beginning when we were married, I'm like, oh, maybe we'll get, maybe I'll have, get pregnant. That's crazy. Or we'd, <laughs> we'd, I'm so young. I'm too young for this. And then we'd do a treatment and I would think, 
maybe this summer I'll be pregnant, but I would always lose that. And then at some point I felt very jaded and thought like I would even protect myself and think this is likely not going to work thinking that maybe that thinking will help me. Um, but this time it was that new, that naive feeling again. Um, so I, that was like some, that was different. And I think we both felt free in the sense that, yeah, sure. So we're going to go for this adoption thing. And I, I mean, it doesn't mean that like, I don't know, I don't like the give up term because yeah, sure. Like God is all powerful. If he wants to make us have a biological children, great. Good on you. Like go ahead. Right. All these things are still possible. Um, but right now we're going to put our physical resources um, into adoption because that's also another avenue that God gave us, right? That's another option we can go for. So that's what we're... Right, but there was also an element of, there is an element, that, and when people call me, I always tell them this, like there's an element of closing the door. You don't want to be in, midst, it, um, in the middle of grieving mm -hmm. when you've moved on to this different thing. It shouldn't be a last resort. And if it still feels like a thrast, last resort, then maybe you're not ready because a child that's coming into your home doesn't deserve to feel like a, like a last resort. And, and likely, you know, when you go through the process and a baby is placed in your arms, you're not going to feel that way. But still, it's just, it's, you want to be in the right headspace. So we had grieved, we had mourned, and then we closed that door in many ways. You know, God can do what he wants, but we have moved on. Like well, it's, that's, what I'm, uh, right. that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. We're, we're going to put our we resources. We give up, but right. we're, we're, we, we're we got a different our, focus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that. And it didn't I think that, require weight gain. But, but, <laughs> but I think that perspective of this is another avenue that God has given us to look into to put our resources behind also had like that perspective also had an effect on what we were like open to mm. in terms of in terms of adoption i remember getting the call i was at work for our last failure it was devastating because i still had that i'd maintained that jaded thing where i was thinking it's not going to work but hoping it would it would it might work this time the doctor was very hopeful and then it didn't work and I went from, I, at that moment, I had to kind of plan what was next. So at first, I had decided I was going to make all these appointments with other doctors, and I was going to take this seriously. And then I realized, I I don't know, I, I just felt horrible about it. I didn't want to do it anymore. It just it was like this anvil on your chest, like you can't breathe. You're underwater. You're choking. That's what it felt like. And then as soon as we made that shift, and I and the therapist mentioned that to me, which was probably within a week or so, or very close together, maybe it was, and then I told Mendel about it, and I heard the way his voice sounded, how relieved he was that we were going to stop what we'd been doing up till now. I don't know, all of that together made that shift, you know? That doesn't mean that, you know, that, that, that there aren't times, even now, when I think like, oh, like, what would, what would pregnancy be like? What would this be like? But it's, it's completely, the intensity is completely different. It's not like an oppressive wound. I don't know, oppressive right. wound, but it's, it's not a raw wound. It's, it's a thought. So how do you come to terms with, with so much of the, like, the sentiments or things within halacha even, that there seems to be such an emphasis on blood and lineage? Is that something that you, you, you deal with? Or? Well, I mean, 
I would I mean, there's a number of things to, to get at. Um, one, how do I come to terms with it? I'm just not so into the, the mm. love language stuff. So I don't really need to in that sense because it's just not of, to me, it's not of primary importance to me. Um, you know, from a technical standpoint, just technically, uh, there are Pisces who hold that um, adopting fulfills your obligation, your halachic obligation of having children. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the details, but there are Pisces who, who right. believe that. Right, and that's why even during like at a, reading the Ksuba or, or uh, at the Bris or when they're when you know our son will get an Aliyah. He's even though technically he's Ben Avram, he can say Ben Menachem Mendel. Right. Yeah. Um. That w- I think that's that was Rav Meisha. Yeah. Rav Meisha was bomb when it came to adoption. And I what I mean more is but not um. But I think I think I think the more important thing to for me is um. Just being honest that there are certain aspects of being an adopted parent. It's not. It's not like everyone else, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're not a biological child. I'm not a biological parent. Maybe there are things in halacha or whatever Jewish life somehow that I'm not technically um, fulfilling part of, however you want to phrase it. No, I don't mean... Uh, yeah. No, no, no mm-hmm. I'm... I'm, I'm I, so, so what I'm saying is it's not this thing that I need to come to terms with. It, it's that... This is different, mm-hmm. um, and I am very happy that we were chosen by God to do this. Mm. I, I mean, again, you know, I like shock value, but, you know, people have had conversations with me about, like, what it's like. But, yeah, but, like, don't you, don't you like, really want biological children one day? And I'm going to find out who are this you, is after this conversation. Are you, you know, are you sure? Like just trying to like really get in my mind. And I'm like, look, let me make it as clear as I can to you. I thank God every single day that he never gave us biological children. Because mm. if he had, I never would have been open to this. And I wouldn't have my Isaac and Fania. There is also a concept that there in, in Family Redeemed, the Rev. Salvechik talks about the idea of covenantal parenthood, um, where he talks about there was two, I might mess this up a little bit, but there's two um, states of parenthood in, in Bracious. We have um, Adam and Chava, and Adam and Chava are natural parents. What's natural parents? Chava, I mean, she doesn't even think about having a child. It's just something that happens. It's instinctual. Um, her motherhood is this like all-consuming physical thing. And what's Adam's role in natural parenthood? Honestly, it's nothing. He create he's he he creates the kids, helps create the kids, and then he's kind of absent. Um, and then we have, but then with the covenant, with Avram and Sarah, we have this elevated form of parenthood, which is covenantal parenthood, where, where Avram becomes teacher, um, educator. His job is to bring the child into the misora, And Sarah is his partner in this, really ch- changing from this like instinctual, natural, raw um, to choosing this and you know someone a, an old colleague of mine who's also a teacher and 
Um, I've learned a lot from him. He introduced this text to me, and, and it was just fit so nicely with the with the concept of adoption. It, it really does. You know, it's not. You're right. It's not. We don't have that the, that that natural biological connection, but there is something where we're bringing children into the misora. You know, that's what it is. Yeah, it seems like so often we grew up with especially in Chabad, because we're always doing Mitzayim, so we have this mantra, like, the only thing that makes a Jew is if you're born to a Jewish mother, right. and we almost shun and, like, throw cold water on anything that says anything like, well, I don't believe it, or I don't feel it, or I don't identify, well, it doesn't make a difference, it doesn't make a difference. And while that's all true and fine, we almost kind of dismiss the fact that, well, the first Jew, well, God made a covenant with him, but w why him? Because he discovered, and he chose, and he defied his father and he defied everything around him to believe in only one God. There was, there is an element to this whole thing, which is from a place of a choice and a covenant and something that someone, you know, um, so yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess there's, there's, there's both, but sometimes I feel like maybe that, uh, the lineage thing gets more play because it, it, it has like a, something i don't know more primitive or, or appealing about it i don't know it's very hard for people mm. the con it's 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 the also the concept of adopting children that weren't born jewish and let me just say that the reason w i mean listen we were chosen we, we were meant to be with our children that's not even a question but often when people enter this world the first thing they're like oh what about jewish children i get this question a lot when people call me and there really aren't many Jewish children. Um, there are chil there are children with special needs. There's a guy who runs a Jewish a Children's Adoption Network. So I might be butchering the name, and they've placed like thousands of uh, Jewish children with special needs. Um, but a lot of Jews are not placing their children for adoption, or they're aborting them. So it's that's the reality on the ground. Um, and so when you when you're in America, um, those are not the children that are in need of homes. Um, but I but I get that question a lot. It's a real mental hurdle for people that to adopt an, a child that's not born Jewish. Hmm. Um, you know, and I just had an experience with uh, my friend's daughter who saw me in the park and was asking about it, adoption in general and Jewish, not Jewish, and um, and that was one of the things I said to her is that every person has a piece has a divine spark, and our role is to reveal that divine spark. So, so regardless of where you come from or who you are or what color of your skin, you have a divine spark in you. And and what an opportunity is it is for us as parents to be able to reveal that divine spark to bring children into the covenant who now become Jews. You encounter quite a, a number of inappropriate or like um well stupid questions mm. um and what we were talking before how, how those can often be learning experiences like there's some some very there's basic misinformation or things that were just never talked about or developed and, and until things that are new are encountered and we get an opportunity to discuss those things what are maybe, I don't know, top two or three of the questions or comments that, that are, uh, I don't know, get under your skin or something that you find yourself repeatedly revisiting? Do you know they're real parents? Do you know they're real parents? I, so why is that offensive? Um, 
We are their real parents. Um, m meaning, what does a real parent mean? Mm. We are their adoptive parents. We are real parents. Do, so I'll rephrase it and I say, oh, do you mean their biological parents? You'll hear adults say that. Oh, the real? Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing I say is, well, also that's private information. Um, so I, it's important to me that they know that information before you know that information. Now, I, I already know, <laughs> Nendel always says to me, Afterwards, he'll say, don't, don't. Because sometimes if I'm caught, I, I, I've gotten much better at, you know, rephrasing things as a learning experience. But sometimes when you catch me at the wrong moment or I'm just tired at that and, I, and I've heard it too many times, then I do, like, my tone gets kind of mean. And he's like, tone, tone. They're like poor chassidisha people that, like, mm -hmm. are trying to learn something from you. Be nice to them. Um, so that's... Uh, real parents. Real uh, parents is one. Um... Are they Jewish? It's just yeah. it's just the way it's it's not that it's a it's not that it's Are a, they it, Jewish is really it's it's you should determine determine closeness. Like it's not appropriate to to meet someone in the park and ask a question like that. You know what I mean? Uh, we get a lot of double takes. I've already gotten so used to it, I, I forget. Um, but we get a lot of double takes and um yeah. Are they Jewish? It's just it's 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 not the time and place when we're standing in a park and they're and thankfully my kids are little so they don't understand anything yet. But in the next few years they will. And and when will that stop? So I say yes, they are because um, they are. Um, I like asking why. Do you have a shidduch? <laughs> what else? I mean, were there were why did you adopt black children? Our children are biracial. Um, what? Well, yeah. Like, why didn't you wait for a white one? Oh, that's one. Yeah, yeah. There weren't any white ones, because um, there's definitely like a in the language. There's definitely a. It's it's just a real shock for people why why we would adopt black children. Um, that's a, another real mental hurdle, especially in Crown Heights. It seems like such a loaded. Uh, situation that isn't that common and and you're like you didn't ask for this but you're find yourselves needing or choosing to have conversations that may be awkward um but necessary would that be right well i don't find them awkward mm -hmm. you're better than me yeah i mean black is the other in crown heights black is the other so and for many people it comes like loaded with you know history of what happened in Crown Heights not so long ago. So it's, it's, and, and before we, you know, we should really just say that Mendel is the one, I was the one that at first was not open to a child of another race. I originally wanted to only have a white child. I was worried what it would be like in Crown Heights and what it would be like in our world. And, then and we're both still worried. What we that's are still so worried like. and we might not end up living in Crown Heights because we might not be able to. Um, but that was something of real concern to me. Um, and I, and then as I started to get involved in the process, we learned that I think a child, oh, in our agency, a child, a white child, um, a p p people who are only open to a white child will wait an average, you know, of 12 to 18 months or more. Um, and, and if you're open to a black child, you could be placed six months or less. Um, so... Aside from the fact that, yes, obviously we want to be parents, those that's pretty staggering. And now, actually, the agency we used will not 
you can't join the program unless you're open to a child of another race because they have so many people who only want a white child. Um, and I remember being at some info session or something, and, and, and there's this woman next to me you know, from the Upper East Side, and I, in my mind I thought, she's obviously going to be open to a child of another race. It's just me. I live in Crown Heights. I'm Lubavitcher. I can't do that. But she has her own calculations about why she can't do it either. So all of this together... Um, started to change my mind. Also, Mendel would text me adorable pictures of black babies. <laughs> I'd be like, how could you say no? It worked. It really helped. Um, and that's it. That's that's how we changed our mind. But we also, oh, we also, not that it's it, we also spoke to Jews of color in our community who had, you know, varying responses for us. Yeah. Um, not all their experiences were good. Not all some of their of experiences were good. were good. And But some, some had good experiences. Some... Um, were very instructive about what they admired about how they were raised or what attitude they were raised with, but also the sentiment that when someone says something to you about what you look like, the color of your skin, you say to them that I feel so sorry for you, but the rapper would be so upset with what you about with what you're saying. Something like that. Mm -hmm. She said it much better. But and a lot of comfort that I found in this process has been looking back at the relationships that the Rebbe had, things that the Rebbe said, which are so affirming of other people and so affirming of each person's divine spark um, and their essence. And so when I have these conversations with people, I, I, I just blame the Rebbe. Like, look what the Rebbe said, mm -hmm. you know? So we can talk about culture. We can talk about, you know, what it was like growing up in Crown Heights. Um, and I don't deny any of that, but there's also like the overarching view that the Rebbe had about elevating each person. And, um, and honestly, I do feel hopeful about the younger generation. You know, I've had events where I've spoken about our story and there are young Hasidish women that I think that if I would meet them, I would assume X, Y, and Z about them, but they're, they're open. They're open to hearing this and they're open to, to talking differently to their children. We had an incident where, where Mendel overheard someone talking to their kid about, like, rephrasing what their kid said about someone black. And and I don't want to go into the details just because I don't want to say the story, but um, the point was it was very hope. Mendel said it to me as a sad story. But I thought it's so hopeful. Like, imagine this young mother, I don't know, in her 30s, um, is is reorienting the way her kid is talking about race. That's crazy, you know? So, and people have said to me, oh, like, why are you even living here right now? I choose to try. We, I choose, I choose to, to, to have some faith in the people that are around me and um, have some hope in my peers. And if it's not going to work, then we'll have to move. Um, but, and I'm obviously not going to sacrifice our children for this. But I do believe that in the younger generation, or even in the older generation, like we have peers. I remember being at meals when we knew that we were thinking about we're going to we're going to adopt a child be black and um, or could be black, um, and sitting at meals where they'd be like Schwarz is this, Schwarz is that, and thinking what am I? Wh how? Like what will they think? What will they? And even those people on their terms, they're trying. Um, Schwarz is, is a word which. I would love to talk about. Unpack, yeah. 
I mean, that word is bandied around all the time, and it's and and people love to defend it by saying it just means black. Just means black. It's not. There's a tone. There's a derision, and so the way it's used is like a slur. She's not stam dating a guy. She's dating a schwarze. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, so like, there's us, there's them, and then there's and then there's schwarzes, and schwarzes are stupid and criminals and rapists. Um, it's pretty crazy. It's it's and and so when people say it around me, people I've had people close to me say that, so I say to them, "Oh, you mean like Isaac?" Hmm. Um, and then they get scared. <laughs> but I don't know. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm I, when I've spoken to women, I've said like in our community, I like basically plead with them like. You know, I see my children and the the like the way my son, who's a little older, is like experiencing Yiddishkeit for the first time, and like you see, you see, like there. It sounds so like hokey, but his like nishama, like he's burning bright and like experiencing all of these things for the first time, and then he can go to school and it will be shattered. You know. And that's a devastating, it's such a frightening thought. And I will do anything in my power that I can to try to prevent that. But I might not be able to. So I have to build them up. And then I have to plead with other mothers and other parents and say, like, please, you know, let's, like, reframe that, you know. There's. It's not me. It's the Rebbe. That's what I say. A few stories that come to mind. One I heard recently. I'm going to fudge up the details. But something to the effect of. There was a few different uh, black kids in uh, Labav Yeshiva on Ocean Parkway. It's two different stories. One, I, I know who it is, but the ending of one story w- is that the, the Rebbe wrote to Anhala to take care of the situation. The kid was being bullied, and it wasn't it wasn't addressed. And uh, the Rebbe called the Anhala because it came back to him. Whoa! And the Rebbe said, "I'm." going to come to the school myself if this is not addressed immediately. Things aren't put into place. Yeah. I could send I could wow. yeah, please. I'm I definitely going to say that. that's yeah. being filed away. Yeah. Yeah. So I would assume that I mean, the, the people the Shabbos meals that you were at like uh y- you don't think that these are uh you know in any way bad people these are misinformed or a lot of it uh, is it, about it, lack of it, experience i mean your your horizons are so small when you sounds very offensive the way you're saying your horizons are so small. no I what mean, i mean is when you don't know anybody right right you literally when you don't know a black person in the world right good people um will fall prey to uh, stereotyping and racism wherever there's enough of an excuse for it to be un- go under the radar until we in- encounter a reason to challenge ourselves, just like w- we are uncomfortable about challenging ourselves for the betterment of our, s- of our character in, in every other yeah. arena. Yep. And here we have like a, a valid reason enough that to blame it on because of what happened to my cousin or my uncle and the time I got mugged or whatever, like there's always something to attribute it to. And right. all of a sudden I have, n- and I, I no personal reason to like, you know, and, and what do you mean? I mean, we ourselves, I mean, I've evolved. Mm-hmm. I think I grew up, I not, I grew up in Boston. My parents are good people who never, I mean, never said a racist word, but there was, there was still a certain tone that we had that I, that we've all changed. Like I, I just, 
I was forced to see the other side in a way that I never had had to. Like I don't have the luxury of like pretending like you know racist things don't happen or it's harder to be you know a black man wearing a hood around police. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. my reality has changed, um, and 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 it's it's hard for me sometimes, especially. There's never an excuse for violence, but there is also a whole, there, there's a background, which as, you know, Lubavitchers growing up, many of us in like middle class homes or whatever it is, you know, many of us not in broken homes, there's just a reality that we, we, never, we never see the other side. We don't know, there's a whole, there are areas in this country where, you know, they're all fathers are absent, or many fathers are absent. Well, what does that mean? So you've never seen a stable marriage around you, ever. You've never seen stable relationships. You know, lots of people that you know are in prison. You're likely going to go to prison for a time, and it's not that big of a deal. Like, there's just all of these things that are not, our, we're lucky that that's not our reality. So it's like, it just provides a, a different picture. Again, not to excuse crime, not to excuse violence, but to provide like a, some type of larger picture of how does this happen? You know, or 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 just this pick yourself up the by the bootstraps. You you could just do it. Well, maybe you can't do it. You know, maybe you know you're in a terrible public school, and if you're gonna do well, like all the odds are against you. You're a star that you did that, and and I, that was something I think I was blind to for a long time because I didn't need to see that. And you to know? be clear, like what you're describing isn't really a race-specific thing. This no. is more of just the, this is the world. No, no, it's like what does poverty bring? What do broken families bring? What do, you know, you know, pops and fathers bring? Um, the, yeah, that could be here. It could be, it could be in Crown Heights. It could be in, you know, in the Appalachian, you know, in an area in Pennsylvania. What does unemployment do? Like all of these things. And, and we're lucky that many of us don't know about that. And it's like, it's, eye-opening no you, you both have like your pulse on like the culture of crown heights you have a good sense of it like a an honest one if you had a magic wand like what would you want to see changed or what would change look like in this area whoa that's deep i'll try that i mean i, I I think it would just be embracing that genuine view of the Rebbe about the essential dignity of each person, no matter where they came from. You know, Jew, Jews were chosen. We have something very special. But non-Jew has some human dignity within them. And it's our, like how lucky we are that we are the chosen people, that we're able to, to show what that means, to be loving, to be kind, to be good. You know, just embracing those things that are already there that we sometimes forget. Like that would do so much. Like it, it That's like funny, like a lot of, I don't wanna say a lot, sometimes, sometimes you bump to Lubavitchers who will take, you know, some in the relative, Relatively speaking, a minor thing that the Rebbe spoke about. Not wearing contacts. Like <laughs> turn it into like, right? Never get an ultrasound. Right? They'll take something um, and and be so literal and uh, so literal in its application and like, such a serious thing. But then like when the Rebbe, I don't know, says something about 
you know, around the lines of the dignity of all people to some mayor that came by or some other politician. It's like they kind of get the sense that they view that incident as like, oh, yeah, the rebel was kind of just like whatever. Political. Move the man along. He's being political. Right. It's uh, when when really that's like like a really, you know, fundamental idea about about the world that the Rebbe is right. exhibiting. Or, and it was also so, what's been so, I don't know, I think over the years, in some ways I've had some like maybe distancing at times from like Lubavitch and, and the things that we stress, but this is something that's like tightened me again in many ways is that the Rebbe's views, let's say, on criminal justice reform were so ahead of their time. It's like only now, and now everyone's realizing, and now everyone's writing about it, and now, you know, left and right can't believe that, you know, we had minimum sentencing and this and that. But the Rebbe saw that ahead of his time, and and there was some sense that even a violent criminal ha- has some hope or 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 we should try or we should think and and it's just it's it's crazy it's like so not conservative i mean it's 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 being hopeful about people i mean i mean that conservative view or that view of you know looking at each person and seeing like our natural fallenness that's obviously a very christian idea and this is like looking at someone and seeing the hope and that potential, it's really wild and new agey in some way. It's, it's so, and I, but I do think that we are slowly changing, you know, um, there was that video, that eighth day video with Ellie Marcus and I messaged my, my friend who's married to Ellie Marcus. And I said, I, I love that video. Like not only like the different kids, there was a black kid in it and there was this, there was that. It was just, kids are going to watch that. And that's going to, you know, that six-year-old who's watching that is going to be very affected by that. So I think, like, we're slowly having these cultural changes. And I don't know. I choose to be hopeful about it. Like, I, I, yes, if I could wave my wa- magic wand, I would. But I also think, like, it's going to happen, it's, you know? Do you agree? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Thank, Thank you for having us. All right. Any closing uh Remarks or statements. Stop saying Schwarz <laughs> Please. Yeah, that would be greatly Please. appreciated. Oh, Unless you're really, really old and like, you know, you... S- and you can't even hear <laughs> us explain why it's not you good. You know, yeah. It would be helpful. Cool. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Mendel. Thank you, Malka. Thank you. Thank you.